custom has arisen that the last words spoken shall be to salute the dawn of the games to follow. In the name of the International Olympic Committee, raise your glasses in honour of the sixth Olympiad. May it be prepared in the fruitful labour of peaceful times. May it be celebrated when the day comes by all peoples of the world in gladness and concord. So said Pierre de Coubertin at the closing banquet of Stockholm 1912. But it was not to be. Okay, so where do we start? <laughs> well, I mean, cancel the Olympics, that's a bit mad, no? You'd want to have a really globally catastrophic event to cancel the Olympics. You, you can hardly even imagine it. Can you, can you even imagine it there, Chris? Uh, I kind of can, Okay, actually. Yeah. I, can, I can picture, well, we have the modern context, but actually, no, I can't picture what it was like uh, 104 years ago when the Olympics should have been taking place in Berlin. And, oh, it was all set for a wonderful time. Stockholm had really, they set new standards for what the Olympics were supposed to be. And here were Germany, this pillar of the Olympic movement, in Pierre de Coubertin's own words, set to take on their own Olympics. Pierre de Coubertin loved the Germans. Absolutely loved the Germans. Because they loved the Olympics. And they had built a new stadium for it, opened on the 10th of June, 1913. 10,000 people, 10,000 carrier pigeons, about 30,000 spectators. A wonderful occasion for all. It had Kaiser Wetter as well. It was a beautiful day in Berlin as they opened this new arena for the Olympics set to take place three years after that. Can I just say, Chris, you're slightly burying the lead there when you said that there were 10,000 people. Uh, in the procession, there were 10,000 gymnasts, including ladies, possibly sexy ladies, which we are a fan of in this podcast, <laughs> going after that 51% demographic. Yes. Uh, it wasn't just the 10,000 gymnasts, but there was athletes of all kinds, right? Tennis players, swimmers, athletes, basically just a, a big parade of wonderful athletes, many of whom would have been taking part three years later. And I think maybe the best way to start this podcast is to look at what might have been in 1916 if we assume that the olympics did take place uh, or would you rather deal with the the painful facts of the war before that ah no no let's brush over that um well we we all remember that uh, stockholm took out boxing but that was going to make a return for 1916 archery was axed um, yeah, there was there was a proposition from the French for a fifteen aside rugby, but that was duly ignored. Now, the Austrians they came in with a very bullish proposal of bringing and properly instating a uh, cycle polo, which we are fans of on this podcast. Um, but to their enduring shame, the IOC also rejected this request. It was yeah, so uh, that was bicycle polo's big chance. And uh, didn't get in. But what did get in was golf. Yeah. Interestingly enough, which uh, was a big thing in Germany at the time, particularly with the uh, the royals and the Kaiser's sons were very enthusiastic about it. So the royal influence was applied there. And there was a new course laid out at Berliner Golf Club. 
and uh, it was actually near the Imperial Palace as well. So golf was set to take uh, a big role in it. Most of the events were going to take place at the beginning of July, but like in uh, previous Olympics, they were going to spread the schedule out a bit. They were going to have hockey and football in May and June and then have rowing in August for some reason. So it was going to be a fairly elongated Olympics, but the main program would take place from the 1st to the 10th of July. I think one of the most important things to take from 1912 is just do it over two, at most three weeks. Everyone's happy. It's great. Boom. Let's let like mm. n- none of this nonsense of put in the rowing in August. Like the rivers are there other months too. That's just yeah. <laughs> and we were seeing uh, a big shift in the uh, let's just say the attitude of the Europeans towards sporting excellence as well. I think they were getting uh, fed up of having their asses kicked by the Americans at this stage. So the Germans in particular decided that they were going to have a uh, much stronger team and really make an effort to be dominant at home. And in their quest for knowledge, they brought in a man who has featured in this podcast in the past. In fact, he was... Our friend! One of the very first scumbags of the week. Your scumbags. I I thought he was a winner. The official scumbag of the week earlier in in the (laughs) 1900 Olympipod in Paris, Alvin Krenzlein, the guy who decided to show up on the day of uh, Christian Sabbath on the Sunday and uh, take one of his four gold medals, which he won in the 1900 Olympics. He was brought in to be uh, basically the head coach for the entire German team. At the time, he was uh, an instructor at the University of Pennsylvania. He was signed up in a nice, juicy five-year contract worth $25,000 in those uh, days to train the German athletes for the Berlin Games. So he arrived in Germany uh, on the Kaiser Wilhelm steamer and everything was set for German dominance on the track and field and other sporting events. A few of the other countries also put in, uh, invested quite heavily. Um, I think the uh, British team were trying to raise £100,000 across the board with uh, Arthur Conan Doyle at its helm to really bring back the medals for Britain. They had kind of been shamed by the last couple of Olympics, right? They, I guess they realized that gentlemanly pursuits were no longer the way to go and the Oxbridge boys were not going to take home the medals anymore. So they were going to have to raise some money and get some of these plebs in to do the hard running. Talking of London, because you really loved the stadium. I did. In London, yeah. which kind of had a bit of everything. The new stadium in Berlin, not quite to the ex- same extent, but it was to facilitate the athletics, the cycling and the swimming. So it had a bit of a crossover. It was pretty much set to to go for quite a while. And I think it was only in 1915 that they finally decided that maybe this Olympics is not going to happen, right? Yeah, I, I, I do like that it did take that long. That it's like, oh, do you know what? Yeah, yeah, this, 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 this might go ahead. Like, I mean, surely the writing's on the wall, you know? Well, it was an unprecedented war. but uh... I, I still think 1915, like, I, I think in 1914, you could have probably called it. I mean, we've seen, it takes a long time to admit facts in terms of staging Olympics. Yes, it does. There were people who clearly had fears right from the very beginning. Uh, and when the war came, Pierre de Coubertin, he wrote down that barely two weeks after the invasion of Belgium, he was receiving proposals to transfer the games. 
So not necessarily to uh, to cancel them completely, but to move them on. Then in August, our friend, well, no, he's not our friend. He is the, the true scumbag of the week, James E. Sullivan, admitted that it was looking a long way ahead to predict the effect of the war abroad will have on the Olympic Games in 1916. So he definitely wasn't keen to accept defeat yet. He was saying, personally, I hope that Europe will be at peace. If, however, a shift is necessary, the United States is the logical country in which to hold the Games. I don't think so, James. Not after St. Louis. What was that, 10 years previously? I I suppose we should mention the fact that, of course... uh uh, many we we've said it in the past, you know, when we've had gold winners or particularly great stories that we've then had to kind of mention. Oh, and they were killed on the Western Front uh, five years later, ten years later. The people who were participating in the previous Olympic Games they were largely male. They were largely young, obviously fish, and um, so they were called to service, and a huge number of lives, of course, were lost in every sector of society, but sport was also really badly affected. I think from my research, I saw that there was around 100 previous Olympic athletes lost their life, as well as, of course, thousands of potential future Olympians, which is, of course, nothing in comparison to the, what is it, 15 to 20 million people who died during that time. But sport in general, it really was transformed in the public's imagination as well because it after this could no longer be seen as a unifying and peacemaking pursuit because athletes and sports really threw their full weight in behind the war effort on all sides as well and there's a couple of interesting examples of this uh, and one I saw which I really was interested in was uh, Henri Desgrange who's the uh, Tour de France creator and he was also the editor of a sports newspaper called Lotto he wrote something very interesting in Lotto. He said, The Prussians are a bunch of bastards. Dirty squareheads. You gotta get them this time. This is the big match that you have to play. You must use every trick you've learned in sport. And that was on the 3rd of August, 1914, which uh, was uh, an interesting view and one that uh, really links sport uh, and war together. Pierre de Coubertin rejoined the French army, but he was 61 at the time and never made it to the uh, front line but he actually resigned his presidency of the IOC for the duration of the war because he felt that a soldier could not be the one to lead the IOC. And it was around that time that they relocated to Lausanne right? Yes uh, so Pierre de Coubertin was actually going to stand down as the IOC president anyway in 1914 but the war kind of changed his plans. So he decided to step down for the duration of the war. And it was a Swiss baron. So a new baron took over, Godefroy de Blonay, who decided to uh, lead the committee through the war years. And in 1915, he decided to move the IOC to Lausanne in very neutral Switzerland. Did he write any good odes to sport? Godfrey de Blonay? No, I don't think he's a gold medalist in, uh, in this. Second mm. best baron. Yeah. Okay. The whole Olympic movement and the institution of sport was really under threat at this time. And Coubertin, well, he clung to hope that uh, Berlin would still host the Games right until the end, really. He believed that a, a rapid war and a certain victory was on hand but it was then in 1915, so this is the year into the war now, in July 1915, 
there was still confidence that the games would go ahead. But as we know, the, the war showed no sign of ending. There was great hostility and they decided that the games would have to be uh, called off. The Scandinavians and the Americans really pushed that and any plans to move to the USA, as James E. Sullivan had hoped previously, proved to be impossible. Despite all of that and despite the Olympics being cancelled, they are still listed as being the games of the sixth Olympiad because as we've gone through before, an Olympiad is a period of time. So there was an Olympiad focused around 1916 and the games which never took place, which is why we have an Olympipod on it. So this is actually, this is, I've been uh, promoting this as a bonus episode, but this is actually an official Olympipod. I I guess it's officially one, yeah. Yeah, unlike our intercalated Olympipod, which is like, should be an Olympipod, but it's only an intercalated Olympipod. Yeah, I mean, who are we to decide? We only only run the podcast, but we don't run the IOC. few weeks ago we watched a documentary fully for research on the 1920 games and in it they made a big song of dance about how in 1916 the 26th of june berlin actually did uh, hold a little war games but we've not been able to find any further information about this or have you found any further information not a <laughs> sniff of information yeah, so, on it. So there's just one 1980s documentary which claims that this happened. And like there's footage. There is footage. We've seen medals. But even on the Wikipedia page for that day, there's nothing about it. Um, so... No. Did it happen? I mean, yeah, it did. Like, I mean, there's there's video footage. If there... Well, did it though? If the sporting event happens and the Olympipod is not there to report on it, did it even happen? But are we reporting on it now? I guess we are. I mean, I can say <laughs> I, I, I can relay all of the information that was said in this documentary. Um, so here, here it is. This is why I think they're just lying to us because this is literally all of the information. I've not found any information to back this up. But here's what was said in the documentary. While slaughter raged on in the Somme in the summer of 1916, the war championships took place in Berlin's Olympic Stadium. There was a high jump with combat pack, target throwing with hand grenades. It's not the last time we're going to hear hand grenades uh, used in this podcast. Obstacle races, there was marching with full kit, and there were medals made of iron. And the example that was shown in the documentary was an image of a medal from the 26th of June, 1916. But as you mentioned, Ruth, on the 26th of June, 1916, at least according to Wikipedia, no event took place. Which is the fount of all knowledge. Maybe Wikipedia and the rest of the world had enough to worry about. Maybe. Can I just say, and I know it's not the biggest issue of 1916, but like, I do not think marching with your full pack is a good spectator sport. Well, this goes back to the the whole debate about race walking. Ah! Yeah, okay, fine. Uh, yeah, yeah, is yeah. Is this okay. not war race walking? Yeah, maybe it is. Um, quick march. Quick march, yeah. But even though we have put our support behind walking, because we don't want to alienate another track or field or road event, it is. it comes into its own with video uh, footage. I don't think race walking is something that you uh, sit at the side of a road for. 
So anyway, it's it's my one criticism of the war the world championships. That's your that's your one criticism. Okay. That's my one criticism. Fair enough. Okay, let's move on. <laughs> if people have any information on the world championships, or if you happen to be someone who was a researcher or the writer for this documentary on the 1920 Olympics in Antwerp, then please get in touch. Olympipod at gmail.com or anywhere in social media. Please just tell us what the hell happened at that time or did it even happen? Was it a joke? Were you trying to be smart and didn't think that a few years later, (laughs) two idiots would try to create a podcast about that? Because that's what we were planning on doing. We were planning on having a full podcast about that event because you promised us it existed and now here we are a a full mini 20 minute podcast but nevertheless yes nevertheless explain yourself but things were looking up the uh the war would eventually end there would be a bit of a global pandemic peace came back to europe and ruth what better way to celebrate peace by having a sporting event among all of the soldiers from just the winning side. I think that's a really amazing idea. Did they do that, Chris? That's exactly what they did, (laughs) Ruth. In 1919, one year after the war ended, we had the Inter-Allied Games, which took place in France with 1,500 athletes, 18 nations, 19 sports, all victorious, all friends again, Celebrating sport as, again, a peaceful, unifying thing as long as you're on the winning side and as long as you were a soldier at the time. Including one person from Guatemala. (laughs) Yes, the participants were quite varied and the the nations involved were quite interesting. Uh, it It took place in the Pershing Stadium, which was on the outskirts of Paris, And it was built specially for the Games, uh, a concrete structure, which was completed by American troops. And I think 28 nations were invited, but some of them, uh, they had a bit of a long way to go, so they couldn't make it. But there was a lot of support in other ways. So, for example, the Chinese weren't able to send any athletes, but they did show their support by donating gold and silver cups and a vase. Uh, we also had Brazil, uh, Siam, and Japan were not able to send athletes because it was too far away, but they did dispatch messages of encouragement. Oh, that's so, lovely. Lovely, yeah. And uh, the Australians did take part. They did make the journey. The uh, There was one quote from General William Birdwood, who was the commander of the Australian Imperial Forces, and he said, every effort will be made to send the most representative athletes in the AIF to compete in this classic gathering of warrior sportsmen. Now, there's a quote for you, and I think that uh, that is a sign of the times, let's just say. And there were three nations, which I really like, who, who took part. Uh, they didn't even exist at the start of the war. Uh, they were Yugoslavia, Czechoslovakia, and... Now, correct me if I'm wrong here, Hedjaz. I'm not in a place to correct you, <laughs> Chris. I'm just glad that you said it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Hedjaz, which uh, is now a part of Saudi Arabia and Oman. So they sent a small delegation with Arab thoroughbred horses and camels and were giving exhibitions of sword dancing. So they didn't take part in the sports, but they just uh, sent over some 
animals and athletes to do things that they're good at. You mentioned the grenade throw. That featured at the Inter-Allied Games as well, which I don't know. Mm. I just feel like after all the war, maybe like, do we need some more grenades throwing? However, supposedly they did. How, how did it take part? I have no idea. I, th- I, I, I have no idea. I think, I think they got a grenade and they threw it. I don't know if it was the grenade on. Did you? I hope not. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, in which case, like, is it just essentially shishy shot push? I think in this case, we don't need real grenade throwing. We don't need that. We just need... Yeah, I think it was just a distance event. So it was an interesting way of, uh, I guess, showcasing the recently acquired skills of these athletes. And uh, they threw them pretty good distances as well. I mean, it's hard to compare because I've never thrown a grenade. But throwing anything 74... 0.929 0.929 meters is quite impressive. Mm. And do you know who did that, Ruth? I do. Fred Thompson, a yeah. American silent film cowboy. And there's a great picture of him dressed up as a cowboy. He was a bit of a stunt man anyway, so was probably well suited for it. He didn't actually see any action during the war. Army chaplain turned silent film star who, in between that, through a world record, of course, in grenade throwing, because I don't think there are any recorded uh, grenade throws before that. And do you know how he died? He died in 1928 after stepping on a nail and contracting tetanus. Oh. Very ignominious after yeah. all that. Yeah, I thought you were going to say after stepping on a grenade. but <laughs> No, no, no. But tetanus is no laughing matter. Uh, clearly not. So yeah, it created uh, a lot of discussion and attracted a lot of interest. To be fair, I mean, I, I would watch the grenade throwing event yeah it's fairly fascinating as long as it doesn't blow up afterwards then uh yeah very interesting they also wanted to have a bayonet competition (laughs) okay okay so but like would that be because like you sometimes see footage are they gonna like bayonet like a thing of hay or something but that was the problem in the end because nobody could actually figure out a satisfactory way of judging how good a bayonet, bayoneter, yeah, bayonetty, <laughs> a bayoneteur would be. So although it was a key part of training for soldiers, there was no way of really judging who was the best at it. So it was rejected in the end. And I think this is a good time before we, we continue. I just want to give a huge amount of credit to Philip Barker from inside the games who wrote some really interesting articles about these times and a lot of the references i think both of us are making today are on this uh, this article so thank you philip you are a hero for actually uh, creating this content how long is a marathon 26 miles do you want to phone a friend? How long is a modified marathon is your question. <laughs> Yay! Ooh. How long is a modified marathon? Uh, something which takes around 55 minutes to complete, if my memory serves me right. I don't have it written down. <laughs> 55 minutes, 11.8 oh, seconds. Oh, damn. Yeah. Good. Uh, <laughs> uh, 16,000 meters. Okay. Why? Modified. Why did they modify it? Just they uh, couldn't like, they'd like bit tired after the war. Couldn't be arsed or... Uh, 16,000 meters, you said? Yeah. Okay, so that's what, 10 miles? Sure. Right? Uh, a mile is about 1,600 meters, so... Okay. 10-mile race is probably a nicer way to put it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what was your question again? I, I was 
I was just wondering, like, were, were they too tired? And we were just like, ah, oh, no, like, we'll just do a shorty. What's the deal? Uh, do you have an explanation for this? Yeah. Or is this... Uh, no? no? Okay. Just ask them the questions. That's, that's what I'm here for. Uh, who won it? Um, a Frenchman, which, which is quite unusual, because America really took the medals in these uh, games. But it was Jean Vermoulion. Well, that's the, the second time uh, a Frenchman has won the marathon. Well, or in this case, the modified marathon on home soil. Wait a second. No, it isn't. Because oh. in 1900, it was a guy from Luxembourg who won it, not France. Okay. Although the French have the medal, he was actually from Luxembourg. But that was uh, just something I realized in the middle of that sentence. Anyway, moving on. Uh, any other sports from the inter games that really caught your eye? Yeah, there was one other one, which like once I went into looking up what it was, I wasn't that interested. But um, I liked the title of the catch as catch can wrestling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So how do you how do you win as catch as ca- catch can? I don't know. I started looking it up. I was like, oh, this actually isn't as interesting as I thought it okay. would be. <laughs> um, I think like I think it's just a uh, the way you like no no holds barred. Like you hold them whichever way you can. Okay. Is that what it means? I don't know. I, don't I mean, know. I removed I, I removed wrestling already, so uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. my interest in it has uh, dwindled. Uh, although I fear as time goes on, I may uh, change my mind. But at the moment, wrestling is out. According to Wikipedia, which I have now <laughs> got onto to give us a nice. bit more information, it's a classical hybrid grappling style and combat sport popularized by traveling fun fairs. It has a bit of Irish collar and elbow wrestling in it. It's a modern equivalent would be similar to MMA. That's what they're saying. Okay. So, so basically, yeah, do whatever you can. Yeah. Catch yeah. as catch can. Catch as catch can. Yeah. Basically grab them whatever way possible and do whatever you can to get the other man to submit. Yep. Okay. There you go. Uh, boxing was featured. So boxing did eventually return. I mean, this is an Olympic Games, but it did... Uh, return at the 1920 Olympics. And there was one athlete in particular that caught my eye here. Okay. And this was an American, Eddie Egan, who won the middleweight division. And then the following year, he took the uh, light heavyweight gold at the Antwerp Olympics. And then 12 years later, he won gold in the bobsleigh. Ooh. So Eddie Egan is the first man who won a gold medal in both the Summer and Winter Olympics. And his sporting career started to uh, peak right after. Well, actually, can you say it peaked in 1919 when he won his Winter Olympic gold 13 years later? Now, that's quite a stretch of time. So well done to Eddie Egan. Now, that's quite a mix. I'm going to go on a little bit of an aside here. A bit of a, like, you know, relying on Wikipedia aside. Okay. According to... The Wikipedia page on athletics at the Inter-Allied Games. Giuseppe Alberti, the 17th century uh, Baroque painter, won silver in the 4 by 200 metres relay. So another person who stretched it out there. (laughs) (laughs) At the grand old age of... um, yeah, probably about 250 years old. So oh fair play to him. Well, yeah. you know what's going to happen now is you, you've mentioned that some Olympic nerd listening to this is going to freak out and have to go on Wikipedia to fix it because we know sure as hell you won't be the one to fix that dodgy <laughs> link. 
No, I am leaving it there. If it's on the Wikipedia page, like I have to assume that it's uh, a real fact. I think we've got a new segment of the podcast now, Dodgy Wikipedia <laughs> Olympians. There was one other top athlete. I think he was the top athlete of the games. And uh, that was uh, Norman Ross. Does that name say anything to you? It's a nice, strong name. It is a strong name. He was a strong <laughs> swimmer as well. And the, the swimming which took place at Mar de Saint James, which was a lake in the Bois de Ballon, which people who remember the 1900 games will remember Bois de Ballon. And it was quite a, a picturesque setting. And in fact, people said it was the most picturesque setting for a swim meet ever. So there were tents erected for the dressing rooms and other comforts were arranged for them. A beautiful setup altogether, which is not what we've really had for swimming so far in this podcast, particularly in the early years, and even more so in Paris when we had to send them down the River Seine on their uh, wild adventures. But Norman Ross was the outstanding performer of the entire Inter-Allied Games. He was the second lieutenant in the US Air Service. He won the 100 freestyle, 100 backstroke, the 400, the 800, and the 1500 freestyle. So he was an incredible swimmer altogether. Picked up a load of medals, and at the Olympics the following year in Antwerp, it will not surprise you to learn that Ross won three gold medals. So we were seeing a lot of athletes who, unsurprisingly, were amazing here and then would also dominate uh, one year later in Antwerp uh, in a variety of sports. We've seen a boxer there, uh, also a swimmer and also many of the track and field athletes. The Americans, as we said, did quite dominate. Uh, they also did have American football and baseball and basketball feature at these games. Uh, did it? Oh, yeah. I knew I knew basketball did, but American football, Jesus. Baseball. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's harsh. Uh, I, I don't know how many teams participated. I'm going to go out on the limb and guess that uh, the USA won in those events. <laughs> I would say too. The soccer tournament was fairly large, as you'd expect uh, at at this time. And there is a piece on it from the American uh, soccer website in their year in soccer, 1919. And who did we have here? It was one of the largest international tournaments held to date it had Czechoslovakia, uh, as well as France, Italy, Greece, Romania, Belgium, the USA, and Canada. So no British there, interestingly enough. In the end, it was France and Czechoslovakia who won their respective groups and then met uh, in the gold medal match. And although they were trailing for most of the game, the Czechs, the new Czechs on the scene, landed two goals in the final five minutes and snatched a 3-2 victory away from the host. So a uh, great start to check life in football. You have to feel bad for France because they had a disastrous semi-final or was it, you know, yeah, disastrous semi-final in 1908 when they lost, was it 7-0 to Denmark? I and think it was a lot were, worse. It was like 17-0. <laughs> 17, yeah. Um, they were so traumatised with that that they uh, failed to turn up for the bronze medal match and then they refused uh, to send a football team to uh, 1912. Mm. So, yeah, they really needed this confidence boost, the French. <laughs> but yeah, well, overall, it was kind of a victory for 
the French and uh, Paris hosting a much more successful games. I think it's fair to say uh, 19 years after the Olympics, the stadium that was built remained in use and uh, was used for the sole and exclusive benefit of the people of France, it said. And there was a commemorative tablet which was laid on the front of it, which is very nice. And it said that the cherished bonds of friendship between France and America forged anew on the common field of battle may be tempered and made enduring on the friendly field of sport. And uh, Pierre de Coubertin was also very happy about the, the games taking place as well. Usually he's not happy about major events that take place either as part of the Olympics or outside of the Olympics. But this one he was quite happy with. I imagine one of the contributing factors to him absolutely loving it was the fact that there were no women. Ah, well, actually, his quote uh, has been given a bit of new context based on what you just said there, because he described <laughs> he described the Inter-Allied Games as extremely useful and showed that muscular value and sporting enthusiasm were not on the decline. Going into this recording, I was thinking... Well, this is just a bonus episode because, you know, we're not we're not really talking about a games that went ahead. But then, as you rightly pointed out, this is an official Olympopod. It is. So does that mean we have to take a sport out of the schedule and place one Ooh, in? Ooh, whose turn is it? Um sure we'll say it's me. <laughs> well, we can we can discuss this together because we're putting both of ourselves on the spot. But I'm gonna suggest I'll I'll gonna suggest a sport. Okay. And you suggest the sport that we take out instead. Okay, fair enough. So I think given that we mentioned um, that this has kind of cross uh, national support because the Austrians suggested it, it's only right that we mention bike polo. Ooh. This I don't know if maybe not everybody follows me on Twitter, but so just some personal news. I now have a bike um, and I love my bike and I really think it would be a really suitable bike for bike polo. It's probably as much as old as the sport too. I think bike polo is great. I, I thought you were going to go for lacrosse at this time because lacrosse has been in the news recently. It has. And yeah, that could that could be good for the listenership. Um, but you know, Chris, I don't pander. No, you don't pander. To the listeners. You don't pander. Yeah, so regardless of how, how uh, loving the lacrosse community is to each other at the moment after Ireland decided to give up their place at the World Games in 2022 i think which is going to be in the usa and gave it to the iroquois i think that was a really nice gesture and something that patty o'leary spoke about in our 1904 podcast we're not gonna choose it for this one but i thought it'd be worth a worth a worth a shout out let nobody say that you know i don't listen to your feedback how about we meet halfway and we have bike lacrosse is that something that could happen <laughs> but i don't think so i think you, you kind of need i mean for bike lacrosse yeah you kind of need both hands for the stick okay if you only use one hand for the stick then it is kind of just bike polo but the the stick has a net on it instead i don't think it would change the sport very much so let's but it would also be full contact 
It'll be full. It'll be it'll be bike polo, full contact, but and a bit of a net at the bottom. Okay. Nah. I, I, let's let's just make bike polo full contact. Let's stick just okay. how the Austrians. Yeah. I'm sure would have liked it. Perfect. Okay. Are you okay with putting this in the in the schedule? Oh yeah. I feel I feel that there's a bit of skepticism. No, I mean on uh, your part. No, no, no. They, this is this is open for all. I mean, someone could come along in the next podcast and take it out again. So that's the joy of the olympipod and i do actually have a sport in mind to take out okay and when i was looking through the graphics for the sports being brought in and out i noticed a few days ago that equestrian dressage is its own sport ah here we and we know and we know how i feel about that we know how we feel about that and we know how i now feel about bikes so perfect so dressage is its own Sport, it is not a part of eventing or the general equestrian, which means we can take it out without destroying all of the equestrian events. And that is what I'm going to do. I'm going to take out equestrian dressage. Also, a listener uh, sent me a video earlier today um, of people dancing on bikes so you know we could that's a possibility too we can also uh, put in a little uh display event of people doing synchronized uh bike dancing it, it could be a subcategory of bike polo absolutely but yeah i'm not sure how but like we can we can work on that yeah we'll work on that we've got we got time obviously there weren't any medals so we can't ask what you would have won i think we can just assume i would have won because i was at home I wouldn't have seen any action and uh, my rights as a woman would probably begin to improve. So I'm yes. the winner of this Olympopod. Absolutely. And I think that's uh, going to be an interesting facet of our upcoming Olympipods in the 1920s when uh, a lot of political and cultural changes are afoot and uh, will be in opposition and in competition with what the Olympic Games are all about. So that's a fascinating decade of olympipods to come are we gonna are we gonna finish uh, this podcast with a, a little birthday celebration ruth so we've got a few um birthdays to celebrate it rob watson longtime listener and active supporter of the olympipods uh, it's his birthday on saturday happy birthday rob happy birthday rob for your birthday, you can listen to all of our podcasts again. Absolutely. And his birthday on the 19th of September is shared by many, many incredible Olympic athletes. And I've just picked out three of my favorites for you as well. Two of them we've already had in the Olympipod and one is a more modern athlete. So starting off with my favorite marathon runner name in the early Olympipods, it's Canada's Ronald McDonald. His birthday was also on the 19th of September. We also have Billy Shering, another Canadian marathon runner. And so those of you who don't remember our intercalated pod, he was the guy who uh, his local town managed to raise a little bit of money for him. He got a tip on a a horse race, bet all of it on that, won, then went to Greece, what was it, a month early? Yeah. Yeah, And uh, he worked as a a porter at the central train station, became beloved by all of the locals, and then he ended up winning the marathon 
in 1906. So Billy Shering, also born on the 19th of September, and the more modern one, who was born in uh, 1986, is Sally McClellan Pearson, I think better known as Sally Pearson, who won the 2012 gold medal in 100-meter hurdles and a silver in Beijing 2008. The Australian former sprint hurdler and great personality as well, Sally Pearson, also shares her birthday with Rob Watson. So happy birthday to all of you. What an auspicious day. And if you want any further shout outs or you want to give us money or you want to criticize us or you want to give us a bit of a tip, uh, you can get in contact, as we said, at olympopod at gmail.com or on our social media. Of course. Excellent. So be polite. Be polite. (laughs) So how do we wrap this one up? Um, Yeah, I mean, there was a bit of war. Uh, There was a global pandemic. Everyone was like, oh, my God. And uh, it all went ahead. It was all grand. It's fine. It didn't go ahead. There's like there was a light at the end of the tunnel. Eventually, like sports did come back. Eventually, it sure did. Nothing, nothing can stop sports. That's that's my that's my thing. Nothing can stop sports. Excellent. And on that note, we'll see you for Antwerp 1920 next time. <laughs>